Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we pick a different ingredient and say anything we can think of to say about that ingredient. Today, we're talking about brown sugar. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is Alice's kitchen manager, Adrian Huff, and it's time to Check the Pantry. cherished food stereotype is that a brown version of a food is made with fewer processing steps. But brown sugar, at least the kind that's actually labeled brown sugar, takes the two end products of sugar refining, white sugar and molasses, and recombines them. More molasses for dark brown sugar, less for light. What about all those other brown colored sugars though? Demerara, Muscovado, Pilanchillo, Jaggery, Turbinado, etc, etc, etc. To sort this out, Let's talk about sugar refining. Most of the world's sugar is produced from the sugar cane. Europe uses mostly sugar beets, which grow better there. Once refined, both the cane and beet versions of white sugar are identical, pure sucrose, made of fructose and glucose. The other byproduct of the refining process, molasses, is very different between the beet and the cane. Sugar beet molasses is considered unpleasant by everyone except certain Germans and is normally used in animal feed or in many places as a component of de-icing compounds for winter roads. Cane molasses, on the other hand, while strongly flavored, is enjoyed by many people in all its concentrations. Sugar cane refining starts by pressing the harvested cane to yield a mostly clear, sweet liquid. The traditional method, developed in India several thousand years ago, boils the juice in several stages. And depending on how long the juice is boiled, the product is called golden syrup, cane syrup, treacle, or molasses. Modern methods use vacuum evaporators to accomplish the same thing. At this point, one of two things can happen. You can either continue to boil the syrup until crystals of sucrose begin to form around clumps of molasses and then manually work the mixture to separate most of the crystals from most of the molasses and leave the resulting mass of mostly sucrose to drain. This is how the lumpy, solid type of brown sugars like Indian Jaggery, Filipino Muscovado, Mexican Piloncillo, Japanese Cocuto, and the rest are made. Or you can stop boiling and put the concentrated syrup in a centrifuge, which very efficiently separates molasses from sucrose, resulting in large, dry, pale brown crystals that, depending on exact process, are called turbinado, demerara, or raw sugar. These are then sent to a refinery to undergo several further steps, including washing and syrup and removal of color to yield the pure white sugar we're familiar with. The removed molasses is thick and bitter and is commonly known in America as blackstrap molasses. Now, commercially labeled brown sugar takes this pure white sugar and adds back a percentage of molasses. The advantage here is consistency. A particular label of brown sugar will always be the same in moisture content, molasses content, color, and flavor, and the crystals will always be small and easily dissolved. This can be important in baking and pastry work, and is of course very important at an industrial scale, when products must be identical from batch to batch. And it's worth remembering too that no matter how it's made, whether boiling in open flame kettles or spun in a massive complex centrifuge, all the brown sugars are still mostly sucrose, still calorie dense, and still not magically health promoting because of a couple of percentage points of vitamins and minerals. They're still sugar after all. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I will be your host and I am joined today by Adrian Huff, kitchen manager at Alice's. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Jeff. You may remember her if you spend any time out east and road from her long service as the baker out at Fritz Creek. So she is an expert on sugar. 
and pastry. That's putting it very nicely. <laughs> I'm a very nice person. <laughs> and she's joined us today to talk about brown sugar. And you may sort of go, well, why are we just having a show about brown sugar and not, you know, all kinds of sugar? Well, it's hard to talk about brown sugar without talking about white sugar a little bit. They're obviously mostly sugar, but they have different uses. Brown sugar and white sugar, depending on what you're making, can have very, very different uh, impacts on the, the final product. For example, most famously in cookies. Yeah, I've seen it a lot. I mean, it's the most known comparison. You Google, what's the difference? And you see a chocolate chip cookie, it's fluffy or it's crispy. And which one's which? Usually when you use brown sugar in a, like a creamed type recipe, they're going to, brown sugar is really moist. So it's going to suck in all that moisture and it's going to make it chewy and fluffy. Right. So that's the chewy, fluffy cookie. It's such a, yeah, it's a classic thing. And I've actually, I've done this where I've, you know, I've made, taking the same chocolate chip cookie recipe, just a random recipe, you know, nothing even trying to make it special. And if you swap out brown sugar 100% for white sugar, the, I mean, the, the, the difference is dramatic. You know, the, the brown sugar, it always, it, it spreads less. It tends to be a little higher and it tends to be a lot chewier. It's a little darker usually, whereas the, the, the white sugar cookies are almost always crispy. And so it's, it's kind of a common thing, you know, some people, and some people like crispy chocolate chip cookies. Oh, don't get me wrong. I and love some, the crunch. Yeah. And some people like the chewy kind. And so it's pretty easy to say, oh, I wanted this batch of cookies to be chewier. You just up the brown sugar a little bit. Yeah, completely. But it also does weird things too, because brown sugar is acidic and white sugar isn't. So if your recipe uses baking soda... They're going to act completely different. Right. It helps when you have a lot of ingredients in an oatmeal cookie when you add a lot more brown sugar because then you're feeling the different textures of the ingredients you've added. If you've added white sugar or more white sugar to an oatmeal cookie, you're going to get that crunch and everything else that you mixed into your oatmeal, it's going to be the kind of hidden with the crunch. Well, and the flavor of, of brown sugar, too, is just classic with oatmeal. You know, like, I mean, who puts white sugar in their bowl of oatmeal? Plus, you know, the thing about what... Uh, Another thing about white sugar is because it doesn't have any real flavor of its own, you know, it tastes sweet, obviously, but it doesn't, you know, brown sugar has that molasses character. And depending on what kind of brown sugar you use, like I actually got recently kind of into using, well, it was Pilanchilo in Mexico. Have you seen it? It's the cones. Yes. Yeah. And they, I think it's Panela in the rest of Latin America. It's Pilanchilo in Mexico. And it's kind of a pain to use because you have to chop it. And then I usually have to grind it in a mortar and pestle, but it's super, super intense because there's a lot of molasses, but sometimes you don't want that. Yeah. Like in a I, butter cake. I have rarely used it for the fact that everything that I'm baking, I don't want molasses flavors. If I, if I go towards that, it's dark brown sugar all the way. I don't think I could range further than that for my personal taste. And the other difference between them is brown sugar, in addition to being acidic, because of the molasses content, it's got more moisture. The classic method in, in the States, at least, to make a cake is creaming, right? Yep, that's the standard method. But when you're doing that, you're basically requiring the butter to edges of the sugar. The way I understand it, anyway, is the edges of the sugar are sort of cutting through the butter, and that's creating this, like, aerated structure yep. for the cake to rise in, right? Am I, I got that right, right? Yep, that's totally right. But the thing is, if you try to do that with brown sugar, A, the crystals tend to be differently sized. You definitely, it's definitely hard to do with like a jaggery sugar or one of the, one of the unrefined um, brown sugars. But with, even, with, even with a refined, like a commercial brown sugar, the crystals are a little bit of a different size and there's so much moisture that it doesn't, it doesn't work right. Have you ever tried to yeah. make, a, make, a purely, make a butter cake with pure brown sugar? No. I would never venture that way. I mean, there is, um, you can do like a pancake, like you're making it from a pan and you're just going to keep it there and eat it there. Right. Like a gingerbread or. Yeah. The only way I would ever do it is mixing both 50, 50, or maybe a little more white sugar, just because that white sugar is aerating. It is helping with the cake stance and it's helping hold everything together. When you add that brown sugar, yeah, it helps with the moisture of the cake. It helps flavor, but you're going to have something that's gonna fall apart that's one of the big reasons for using white sugar is that it's technically it's the same everywhere you know it doesn't matter where you get it from white sugar is white sugar the only thing that's different is crystal size you know there's super fine white sugar versus 
confectioner sugar, which is, you know, the finest, and then regular table sugar. Other than that, it doesn't matter if it's beet sugar or cane sugar or whatever. As long as it's white sugar, it's sucrose. But it has that technical quality of being clean. Like if you're making a vanilla cake that's just supposed to taste like vanilla and butter. You, one, need the structural help of white sugar, and two, you don't want any molasses or caramel notes in your vanilla cake because it's vanilla. And and even stronger flavors, you know, like that molasses note is so characteristic that, you know, like, I mean, if you're just hypothetically like a kiwi tart would be kind of weird with brown sugar. Oh, yeah. To me, you know, whereas with something like strawberries, it it might work, but it might be a little weird, too. Yeah. You know, getting like closer, it, but it depends on it depends on things. But then you look at something like apples and you're just like, I mean, perfect apples and brown sugar are just a match made in heaven. Apple brown betty is one of my favorites. How do you make your apple brown betty? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. It's OK. So I've never actually made a brown betty. It's it's, it's kind of like a cobbler, but it's not right. It's cakier. No, actually, like a very classic brown Betty from what I read in this recent pie book, because I just made one. It's actually, it's just like a cobbler. You're piling everything in. You're only mixing. A, it's pretty much a streusel layer right in the middle. Oh, oh And then the, you're just topping it with more streusel. Oh, but there's streusel in it. Yes. Ah. A whole layer. Oh, we're going to talk about streusel lately, later. First of all, since we're on the topic of brown sugar and fruits and brown sugar that goes very well with fruits, let's talk about bananas. Because brown sugar is natural with many fruits, the slight bitterness from the molasses contrasts beautifully with the tartness of the fruit. And we are going to take advantage of this by making a brown sugar pastry cream as a base for one of the great American desserts, banana pudding. Adrian and I went up to Station 12 to make a mess in their kitchen. So, first thing we're gonna do, that's like the best sound ever. Cause that's the butter. Butter being ready? The sound of butter being almost ready. The foam begins to subside. Oh, there you go. So I am dumping a bunch of bananas. Traditionally, in banana pudding, you use raw bananas. But we live in Alaska, and our raw bananas are, unless you can get them like the one day they're good. Which day is that? Not today. <laughs> so I'm gonna caramelize these. They get super rich and super banana-y, but they, you know, they don't have that fresh banana flavor, but they have that intense, like, super sweet banana flavor. We're gonna do something that's a little weird here. I'm salting my bananas just a little. Salt those magical things. I always add just a little pinch. You gotta have it, because it's it's that it like rounds everything out, you know? It brings things into focus. That smells like a banana. Pastry cream is it's a custard. It's made out of eggs, milk, sugar, and cornstarch. And like all custards, it's just a really it's a ratio of eggs to milk. And in this case, the ratio is four egg yolks to one and a third cups of milk to one third cup of sugar to two tablespoons of cornstarch. All the old recipes, I don't know how old you've read these recipes before, but a lot of the old ones are flour. Mm-hmm. So a flour, a flour pastry cream, I made them with, with all flour, and then some recipes call for half flour, half cornstarch. I like them with all cornstarch these days because flour pastry cream, they can be kind of stiff. They're like a little, almost stodgy. And because it is brown sugar week here on Czech Pantry, <laughs> I've got some Demerara sugar. So we are separating our eggs. We are separating a dozen eggs here. Pastry cream, it sounds fancy. You're like, oh, this fancy French pastry cooking. All it is, it's a cornstarch pudding with eggs. <laughs> you know, like really basic American cornstarch pudding just has more cornstarch and no eggs. This is lots of eggs and a little bit of cornstarch, but it's the same basic idea. None of this is complicated, you know? Like, this is all easy stuff. If I was really on the ball, I would have set aside a little bit of the milk to uh, add my, to mix my cornstarch into, 
Because cornstarch, you always, you definitely never, ever, ever, ever add it to hot liquid because it'll clump up. And it's not like experiencing flour clumps where it's like, oh, displeasing. It's experiencing a cornstarch clump. You know when you like accidentally bite down on foil? That's accidentally biting into a cornstarch clump. Yeah, it's really, what happens is if the hot liquid um, gelatinizes the outside of the cornstarch, so it basically makes a shell. The liquid can't penetrate to the inside of the shell. And so you get like an outside of like gelatinized cornstarch and then an inside of just raw straight cornstarch. And it's not pleasant. But I wasn't smart and I didn't save any of my milk. So you can either add cornstarch to a little cold water or you can do what I'm doing. And I just dumped it straight into the eggs. Because now I've got an egg and sugar mixture. That's my eggs and my demerara sugar. You just have to make sure that you mix your cornstarch in really well. And you want it to be, there can't be any lumps. And no little white streaks anywhere. Adrian, please explain tempering eggs. Oh, tempering. <laughs> When you're tempering eggs, you slowly add a warm liquid to egg yolks, slow enough to where it's not cooking your eggs and making them streaky by any means, but fast enough to where you're still incorporating milk into eggs. So what would happen if I just dumped my eggs right into my hot milk? You would have made a really fancy, chunky omelet. <laughs> and it would be gross. Yeah, not, have not to start good all like over. an omelet. It'd be gross. I like waiting until the outside of the bowl is cool enough to the back of your hand. Ooh, that's good. Yeah. I never considered that. Ooh. Yep. Ooh. Yeah, if Where? it's too hot for your hand, then it's way too hot for that milk. So now I have a mix of hot milk, eggs, sugar, and cornstarch. And now the next thing that has to happen is that I gotta cook it. And there's a couple things that that we're accomplishing with cooking these eggs. So what we're trying to do is cook the eggs to the temperature at which the yolks set, which I'm, I can't remember what it is in this mixture. Like ordinarily, if it's just straight egg yolks, they start to set and they start to curdle at 158, I believe. Does that sound right that to you? That sounds pretty close. Yeah, somewhere in there. And But the idea is that as you add liquid to it, you increase the temperature that they set at. The other thing that helps is starch. And in this case, what we're using is cornstarch. And that also raises the temperature, as does sugar, at which they're gonna set. So what we have to do now is we have to bring these eggs to a boil. And that boiling is what makes the cornstarch set up. If you strain the pastry cream afterwards, then any curdled bits and any junk stays behind. Aren't you supposed to strain it anyways? I mean, yeah, you really should. <laughs> I've always been told to strain. I might yeah. be wrong. But... No, no, you should 100% you should of the time strain your pastry cream. When I started making creams, which now I've made quite a few, I've in the beginning I realized my texture has gone increasingly better, a little more silky, but I'm yeah. still always straining. In the beginning, all those chunks would come out, cornstarch chunks, ran yeah. into those in my time. Yeah. Ooh. I much prefer to make my pastry cream the day before because it also has the characteristic of like, after it after it sets up in the fridge, I always notice it's almost like too firm. Mm -hmm. But if you, take it out of the, if you take it out of the fridge the next day and you throw it in your mixer and you turn the paddle on, it'll whip it into this like incredibly silky smooth texture that's like the best. So I am cooking this over medium high, medium, medium high heat. And I am starting to get Chunks at the bottom, which means that we are getting close to my pastry cream being done. It'll start out looking almost like cottage cheese. And then as you stir, those little chunks will sort of break apart and the whole thing will become a little more homogenized. This is where that frequently stirring comes into play. Yep, I am stirring like a madman right now. What do you think? Whew. Looking good. Looking creamy. I think I'm gonna call that good. And now we have this lovely whole bowl 
of beautiful pastry cream. And even though I'm the one that made it and I really shouldn't gush too much, it was all right, wasn't it? Uh, I think it was more than all right. I took the little bag of leftovers home. I thought I was going to put it on something and then just ate it out of the bag. Did you did you snip the corner of the bag off and just squeeze it right into your mouth or did you actually put it into a bowl? That would have been way more efficient. I wouldn't have dishes. <laughs> and banana pudding, does it get more simple than that? I don't think it could, but the simplicity is what makes it great. You think it's you think it's easy, you think it's something like from first glance, you're like, oh, it's just pudding. But then you taste it, you get those subtle hints. Is there anything better than like something really simple, but that's perfectly done? No, I couldn't even think of one item that I'd be like, oh, a simple chocolate chip cookie. That would be my favorite. But you can take that simple chocolate chip cookie, you can change, you can change some of the white sugar for brown sugar, and now you have a different chocolate chip cookie. You can take the butter, you can use a different butter, you can use a higher fat butter, and now you have a different, you can just use oil, and now you have a different chocolate chip cookie. You can use slightly different percentage of cocoa chocolate, and now you have a different cookie. Or you can take sea salt and sprinkle it right (laughs) on top, and now you have like the best chocolate chip cookie in the world. Simply adding sea salt. Well, we talked about that a little bit too. Like, we're, we're, you know, our, the show today is about sugar, but sugar is kind of just the flip side of salt. And people think that they're not supposed to, you know, like a, a, a dessert shouldn't involve salt. But we threw some salt in the bananas. Salt is a flavor enhancer by nature. That's what it's there for. It's like, that's, that's the point of it, you know? I always, my, my go-to metaphor is that salt is like the focus on a camera. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Always necessary, was, but don't notice it's there. I was proud of myself when I came up with that one, I have to admit. I would be too. <laughs> Pat yourself on the back. <laughs> I couldn't imagine our banana pudding without salt. I know. I, I think I added I added some at every step, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because I was curious. He added salt right to the bananas. It's like and not sugar. in the pan, not sugar, just straight salt. Yeah, people, people, you know, sometimes people think, oh, I'm caramelizing these bananas or I'm caramelizing onions or whatever, and i got to add sugar. Well, no, you don't. You're caramelizing the natural sugars that are already present, and that's the goal. Now, something did come up that we're going to talk about in just a minute, because you hadn't heard of the great Boston molasses flood. I could tell by the smile on your face it was coming. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk about it, but first, we have to finish our banana pudding. So now that our brown sugar pastry cream has been made, we're heading back up to Station 12 to finish our banana pudding with some cookies and a Swiss meringue topping. Perfectly thick texture, still smells really sweet. Can we just eat this bowl? We'll make another one. (laughs) We absolutely could sit here and eat this entire bowl, but we are not going to. Obviously, the traditional banana pudding cookie is... A vanilla wafer. However, what I have, because I made an apple tart a couple days ago, and in order to make the tart, I had to make a bunch of dough. And the particular dough that I made was pot sablé which is a French tart shell. It's got eggs in it, eggs and butter, and it comes out, it's a little like shortbread. It's very similar to shortbread. And very shortbread. And so I made cookies with it. I just rolled it out and made cookies. Punched up some cute little teardrops. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm lining a little red earthenware casserole dish with these little pot sablé cookies. And they could be, you could use sugar cookies you know, you can use vanilla wafers. Uh, if you used vanilla wafers, I would be very happy. I just didn't have any vanilla wafers, and I had these. Use what you got. Use what you got. So now I have taken all my weird little crispy chunks of caramelized banana. That's very banana. Like, it's incredibly sweet, but it's also so banana-y. I'm just piling my my caramelized bananas into the uh, on top of the cookies that I have in my little earthenware pot, my little red earthenware pot. 
or what is it? Is this a casserole? I guess it's a gratin dish, isn't there it? There you go. Yep. Yeah. And now I'm piling my my banana or my my brown sugar pastry cream in it. The red goes really well with the yellow. It's very vibrant. Okay, so now we have we're almost there, but we are still missing something because we need like some kind of a creamy topping, right? Of course. I would be totally. I'm totally cool with you grabbing a can of Ready Whip and totally I got nothing fine. to say about that. I got nothing to say about scooping out some Cool Whip and throwing it on top of this either. I also have nothing to say about making some straight up whipped cream and using that. But here's the thing. We got this whole bowl full of egg whites now. And like, I don't want them, I don't want them to go to waste. We can't be wasteful. There's, there's a million things that I could do with this little bowl of egg whites. I could. I could make meringue cookies, I could make whole meringue cake layers and make cakes out of that. But since I have this banana pudding here, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna whip them up. I'm gonna whip these egg whites up and we're gonna make a little meringue to top our banana pudding with. And it's gonna be delicious. I am adding, I weighed my, my whites that I got and now I'm adding an equal weight of sugar or slightly less than equal. I find equal weights are... I was gonna say, you're 50-50? Like... Yeah, I don't really like 50-50. I usually go a little lighter. On the sugar. So, there's three kinds of meringue. There's French meringue. Yep. French meringue is not cooked while you're whipping it. You whip raw egg whites and sugar together, and then you bake it afterwards. Italian meringue, you make a sugar syrup and add that to your egg whites and then whip them. And with a Swiss meringue, you cook your sugar in your egg whites and then whip your meringue after that. Italian meringue is the softest. It's like, but it's also like bulletproof. Like when you put Italian meringue on something, it stays set up in exactly the shape that you made it and it stays that way for... Until you eat it. Ever, basically. Yep. French meringue, that's the fluffiest that you can get. Like it's like... That's all height. Yeah, it's if you want like a super super, you know, the, the the kind of like cream pies where there's like a tiny little bit of cream and then a giant thing of meringue, that's French meringue. And Swiss meringue's kind of in the middle. It's it's stable, like it's not as stable as Italian meringue. It's not quite as soft, and you can still bake it. Like if you want to make meringue cookies, you can you can use French meringue or uh, Swiss, meringue Swiss meringue as well, which is you can also use French meringue for that. Swiss meringue always seems to hold better form for me, at least when I've noticed I've baked it. It's got like crunchier, I'm less likely to get a soft inside. Personally, I find Swiss meringue, it's my favorite just in general because it's so versatile because you don't, because I don't have to worry about weeping, but it will bake nice. Like Italian meringue doesn't really do that well in the oven. Mm -hmm. It gets kind of leathery, you know, and it's not. There's pieces you pull off with your bite that you're like, is that supposed to be attached? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have that, it doesn't have the crispiness, you know, that a Swiss or, or a French meringue would have. So there's, there's trade-offs with all of them. So, but today, for what I'm doing here, all I'm going to do is throw this in the oven and broil it to get a nice color. So I'm going to do a Swiss meringue because it's my favorite. So all that I'm going to be doing for the next few minutes <laughs> is stirring these egg whites until they hit 175 degrees. The faster the better when it comes to this part. Like Pretty close. Take a look at it. Oh, look at that. So what are we looking for there? High form peaks. We have those. These are nice and fluffy and stiff. Do you know the meringue test? Which one? Holding the bowl above your head. I'm not afraid. <laughs> this could be hilarious. Man, there's a new shirt too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a perfect meringue. Look at that. <laughs> Living on the edge. I was really hoping that meringue was going to fall on your head. I wasn't. Like I say, this is a brand <laughs> this new shirt. This is a shirt. new shirt. <laughs> and now, Adrian is going to load this meringue into our pastry bag and pipe it onto our banana pudding. 
So you could actually eat this right now. It would be perfectly acceptable. It would. Or what I would have done is brought in my Burns-O-Matic torch and then you can just torch the top of it. But unfortunately, since I didn't do that, what I'm going to do here is I've got the broiler has been preheating and I'm just going to throw this right under the broiler and it's going to brown on top and it's going to get puffy. But see, here's the great thing about meringue. So I slightly burned the top. Only slightly. Only slightly. I mean, I really, I could have served it. If it were to real friends. I, I, <laughs> I could have served it in a really expensive restaurant and just said, Ugh! It's supposed to be very dark. <laughs> yep. But you know what? All I got to do now is I just scraped it off and now Adrian's going to pipe new peaks on top and we're just going to throw it right back in the oven and it's going to be, nobody will ever know except all of the people who are listening to this radio show. Yep. You guys know, but don't tell anybody. We'll keep it between us. We'll keep it between me, you, and all of the listeners of KBBI. <laughs> Look at that. What a pretty banana pudding. So we had a slight disaster right at the end. That's the thing about unfamiliar broilers. But we saved it. I feel like I even asked you, too, if you trusted that broiler. You did. You actually, when I put it in, you said, hey, you know, you probably should watch that pretty close. And I said, nah. I trust it. Well, you know, the, the actual problem is that I couldn't find uh, the, uh, the oven mitts. <laughs> <laughs> but I found them in the end. I got to know, did anyone notice? Could they tell that we had relayered? Nobody knew. Oh, good. No, I mean, you know, they, they looked at it and they said, oh, that's banana pudding. And then they completely destroyed it because I brought it back to the station after we made it. And uh, the staff was very appreciative. Okay. Now, I left us hanging right before, the, uh, right before we finished making our banana pudding with a story that I was really surprised that you never heard. I thought they would have taught this in pastry school. I mean, I would hope that they would have, you know, glanced over it. But when you told me my jaw dropped and it's still dropping. Well, when you, when you, <laughs> when you start your own pastry school, make sure that you tell them the legend of the great Boston molasses flood. It's going to be one of the highlights. So, so Boston was a huge center for rum production in and basically from colonial days up until Prohibition. It was like one of the major industries in the town. And so they had... The major ingredient in rum, obviously, is molasses. That's how they make rum, is fermenting molasses. And so there was this molasses tank that held 2.3 million gallons of molasses. And on January the 15th, I believe, in the year 1919, just before Prohibition, this 2.3 million gallon tank of molasses in Boston's North End exploded. It didn't, exp well, one of the walls burst out. It's exploding. It is, yeah, it basically exploded. There was like a thunderous noise. People, people that described it said there was this huge noise. And they, you know, everybody stops and they look at what's going on. And suddenly throughout Boston's north end is a 25-foot high wall of molasses moving at 35 miles an hour at its peak. It pushed buildings off of foundations. It pushed a train car off its tracks. It killed, nobody even knows how many horses, and it killed 26 people, I believe, or 21, 21 people, and it injured 150. And it was like this just nightmare of people, the, the way they describe it is just like people attempting to dive into this molasses to save people and then just getting stuck themselves. And it was this horrific tragedy. Yeah, that's terrifying. I hope when people use the phrase slow as molasses, they understand the weight of their words now a little more. <laughs> 35 miles per hour is not slow. No, not and, by any means. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, I like molasses and everything, but I'm not sure. Now, we, we were talking, like, if that had been maple syrup, I might have been okay with getting drowned in maple syrup. It would have been a good way to go. But molasses? No. Yes. It's brutal. So that's the story of the Great Boston Molasses Flood, which is a major milestone in brown sugar history. And let's move on to, since you were talking about the Brown Betty earlier, and I definitely want to talk about streusel because I love streusel in all of its various forms. So how do you make your streusel? Um, 
with precision. Uh, actually, I most of the time wing it now. It's fat, oatmeal, brown sugar, and depending on what I'm using the streusel with, it's any other added ingredient. Oh, you're an oatmeal streusel person? I am an oatmeal streusel uh-huh. person. Do you, ever, do you ever just use straight flour? I do when I want that padded down, like, solid layer mm-hmm. of brown sugar goodness. But most of the time when I'm making a streusel, it's for the added texture. I want that oat, that earthiness. Right. Yeah, and oatmeal and brown sugar. I mean, they're just classic together. Best friends. uh, Actually, streusel is really nice. It's basically, I think the ratio that I usually use is uh, equal parts um, sugar and butter. Yep. And cream those together, kind of like you're making a cake, really. And oh, then, see, I always keep mine frigid cold. Do you? Yeah, super cold. I want to dice it up into tiny little pieces. And... Huh. So you make yours more like a biscuit then? Yep. Huh. Because I always make make mine like a cake with uh, with with uh, creamed butter and sugar, and then I add in a little, usually a little flour. Although, you know what my favorite kind of streusel is? Especially because, okay, I have, a th- I have a, one of my many food hobby horses. I, pref- I have a strong preference for crustless cheesecake. Oh, yep. For a number of reasons that I'm not going to go into. <laughs> I right bet the now. list is long. The, yes, it is. It's very long. But we'll save that for the cream cheese show. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but crustless cheesecake, you need something crunchy on it. So I really like streusel on top of my cheesecake. And you know what I really, my favorite kind of streusel to make is? So brown sugar, butter, pretzels. Ooh. Mic drop. Pretzels would be really delicious on cheesecake. It's super good. It, it, it very much reminds me of, uh, there's a classic uh, southern dish, pretzel salad, that's cheesecake, strawberry jello, strawberry jello, and, and pretzels. And it's a salad because it's the South. Of course. And it's awesome. <laughs> One Speak, of the best salads. Speaking of the South, every week, Skip Clary picks a beverage to go with this week's ingredient. He was terribly excited to share the one that he picked for brown sugar with Joey Lothian. Now, I'm not going to spoil the surprise this week, so let's get right to the tasting we did at Station 12. But keep in mind that while Joey knows his way around quality whiskey, he doesn't know exactly what's in his glass until Skip unveils the bottle. Packs a bit of a wallop. <laughs> I, I can tell you this is overproof, and so what I would, yeah, what I generally recommend for people because at higher levels of alcohol, you get a real blast of flavor initially, but if you don't dilute it, the alcohol will work as an anesthetic on your taste buds, and then your ability to perceive those flavors just starts dropping off more and more. Yeah, which is why we put the water out. The sure. other thing that happens. Um, Here's the science class part. Whiskies will have oil particles in there. Um, most of it comes from the wooden wooden barrel. And so when, when a whiskey is sitting at room temperature, those oil particles reach a kind of stasis point of size. When you add water to that whiskey and swirl it around, it momentarily will break those oil particles up into much smaller pieces and it exponentially increases their surface area because there's lots more of them. And that's when you, that's why the process is referred to as opening the nose because basically right now when this whiskey is neat, I'm getting, um, I'm getting a lot of uh, red berry fruit on this um, cherry, uh, maybe a little bit of red plum. Um, it's kind of bourbony almost. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> it really is. It's got a really strong bourbon it, everything to yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm adding literally like one I, fat drop to it, and that's this, it. If this was a bottle I had at home, I would have immediately put water in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that took it right down. Yeah. Oh. So the fruit has become, I think, less sharp 
um, not just because of the alcohol, but it's actually changed the profile of the fruit. I'm getting lots more caramel now. And more caramel, more wood. Butterscotch, oak, absolutely. Man. I don't know what this is. It's <laughs> not really smoky. Oh, it tastes so good though. And yeah, just a little bit of water. It took that burn right out. Yeah. Because that was like napalm right off the Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it really was. It was what I can tell you is that's that's 107 proof. So <laughs> close to 55% alcohol. Yeah, it was immediate. Yeah. Um, there's um, It's certainly got a little bitterness at the back of the throat, more like kind of like really charred wood. Um, it's not bitter to me so much. It's just right there. Mm -hmm. Like it's smoldering or something. I'm definitely picking up more um, like pastry notes on that. It's there's definitely a butter and butterscotch yeah. thing going on. It's real buttery. Yeah. And it feels like it on the tongue kind of. Yeah, it's got a real creamy texture yeah. to it. I'm very, very happy with this. Yeah. I'd drink the hell out of this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this could be a problem. I won't tell you I won't tell you what it what it is yet, but okay. getting your hands on it would, would be the problem. Yeah. Oh, we're at that level, are we? This is this is a uh, skip. This. <laughs> well, when I here taste this thing, you're never gonna taste again. When I heard <laughs> when I heard you were <laughs> when I heard you were one of the tasters, I just said, Joey's got to do the brown sugar segment because I got something he's got to try. Yes. So Excellent. yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It really is. And now, it really, the water just it actually makes it better. If you add ice to it, it has the opposite effect of the water. When whiskey's cold, yeah, it's fun to drink. It's really, really nice. And um, easy. And, I, and it's real easy to drink. But when I'm really evaluating a whiskey for, um, like, say, a pairing dinner or something like that, I, I have it at room temperature. No, this is amazing. And it's, it's just getting better. This better. is just going to open up more and more and more as, as it gets more air. This, especially with the alcohol being so high, is a fairly volatile whiskey. So it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change over time. So yeah, rapid change. Yeah, don't feel like you need to finish it right away. Um, mm -mm, speak for yourself. Do <laughs> <laughs> I get another one? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I'm almost down to the end of this one, and I did promise a friend I would save some Remember, for him. I'm, I'm but, just, yeah. Ten-year-old <laughs> <laughs> Pappy Van Winkle. Ha! You have a hard time getting your hands on that stuff these days. Really? People line up. Uh, they, a lot of whiskey shops, when they get those in, they actually hold basically a lottery. They just say, okay, you know, put your name in a hat, put your name in a hat and you may be walking home with a bottle of this. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I figured you might enjoy that. I, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you, you got me. You got me awesome. lined out on scotch pretty heavily, but uh, yeah. this is where I started. Well, that's why I brought this, because I thought, you know, we could do scotch, but this is meant to go with brown sugar. And oh. I think if you had some of this and a slice of pecan pie oh, sitting next to it, it would... He said it right, too. It would rule. <laughs> you already get those. None of that pecan nonsense. Oh, no. You already get some pecan. You know, you pecans. pick those up off the ground, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's oh, it's the real super dude. good now. Yeah, it's mm. just getting better. It's sweet now, yeah. almost. Yeah, it took a little while because there were sharper elements that, fire, that really were... The yeah. hot fire was... Yep. It really, uh, really just kind But it wasn't unpleasant. No. It wasn't an unpleasant fire. It wasn't but like it's just a, a different character. Or something. It's just a different you know? character. Yeah, yeah I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna finish that right now. Yeah, that's, that's some guys from the Eastern Seaboard trying to pronounce pecan right there. So... Pappy Van Winkle is what Skip brought, and it's it's a pretty legendary bourbon amongst people who are interested in that sort of thing. So definitely, thanks, Skip. I know Joey was very excited, and I got a little taste of it, too. And Ooh. It was outrageously good, and it would definitely go with pecan pie, you know? And that's... Bourbon is... Uh, bourbon really complements brown sugar, which is kind of unsurprising. Like, southern food, southern desserts especially, tend to be very, very sweet. Sugar tooth, achingly sweet, yes. Yeah, they can be, and that's one of the one of the nice things about brown sugar if you use it because it that little bit of molasses can can go a long way to to helping to cut down some of that sugar, so that it's not so like overwhelming. 
I want to get to the use of brown sugar in savory dishes as well. And we'll, we can talk a little bit about like, because it's, it's pretty common in uh, a lot of Southeast Asian curries, they'll use, you know, jaggery or uh, some of the lumpier sugars. But the most famous one here in the state of Alaska that everybody uses is brown sugar as a cure on salmon. Yes. Yes. My family has only ever taught me to use brown sugar. It's it's shocking how well it fits. It's perfect. I never would have thought as a kid, you know, see them mixing it up. I'm like, sugar and salmon, you guys are ridiculous. Now I'm like, where is the brown sugar? We need it. And it goes it cut it goes so well with the smokiness, you know, because there's there's the salt and there's the sugar and the or the salt and the smokiness and the fat. And if you just get that now it's not that I don't like that style of salmon that doesn't have sugar on it but man when you add just a little bit of brown sugar to it it just like is it because the the sugar's kind of orangey brown and salmon's kind of orangey <laughs> we just gotta match these colors real quick color coordinate our food no i hope not <laughs> but it works it and it works like i don't know have you ever made gravlax with salmon uh yes do you use white sugar or brown sugar in that I used white sugar. Yeah, and that's the classic kind of Scandinavian way to do it, but I have made it before with brown sugar and cause the classic Groblox is uh, is gin and white sugar yep. and then usually dill and some herbs and, and that kind of thing. And I did it one time with, I used this, I've done, I've done it this way with salmon and I've also used this as a cure for smoked black cod, rum and brown sugar. I bet the fattiness of the black cod really amped that up. It goes really good. It goes like shockingly well. And black cod too. God, black cod's my favorite fish. It really? really? Oh, a hundred percent. Why, why are you, why are you it's so surprised? It's on my, like my least really? top 10 favorite. I mean, it's a favorite, but you don't it's like, like black a low, cod? lower end. No, I, I mean, it's one of my What's favorites. What's your favorite? It's on the lower end. What's your favorite? My favorite fish? Yeah. Salmon. Which kind? Um, I definitely like king salmon. Okay. Well then when we do, well, we're going to be doing multiple salmon episodes starting next summer because it's not salmon season right now it's not but i'll keep you in mind man i can't believe you don't like black cod that much i mean it's still on my top 10 (laughs) (laughs) but black cod is is a great great um fish for like and 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 it goes really well in like the sweetened the, the sweeter end of the curries like black cod would go amazing in like a vietnamese um uh the Vietnamese do a lot of uh, uh, sugar glazes, and their fish that they use is uh, is catfish. Catfish is really there's a lot of catfish in the Mekong Del- in the Mekong River, and um, so the Vietnamese use a ton of catfish. And black cod is my secret substitute for catfish. I was gonna say they're very alike, but one not as dirty as the other. Neither in my mind, them, neither one of them are dirty. <laughs> black uh, catfish. <laughs> Catfish has this reputation because so much of it is like mediocre quality farmed stuff. If you get the good quality, either the good quality farmed or the best is is wild catfish, but it's almost gone now. There's very, very few of them left. It, it has that same like oily quality that uh, black cod has. It's a, it's a little bit different flavor. And even the, even the, the finest of the river stuff of the wild stuff is still, it's going to have that funk to it. Black cod's a bottom fish too. Yeah. Point proven. I'm a very passionate advocate of black cod because it's my favorite fish in the whole world. And it does it. And it's, it's such a versatile fish because it can take so many different flavors, but it's very strong on its own. And, and with a little bit of brown sugar and a little bit of rum, you throw that in the smoker and it's like out of this world, delicious. Oh yeah. You know, and I, and I use it, I, I got turned on to that because, you know, Louisiana, obviously they use, we use a lot of catfish down there and I started subbing and it, was, it, it took me a while to figure out an Alaska sub for, for catfish. And so I was making, I tried it with salmon and salmon was terrible. Like salmon oh, doesn't, yeah. salmon doesn't work in that style of food at all, Nope. but black cod, oh man, it totally does. See, I definitely thought when you were going salmon and brown sugar, you were just going to say, put a little on a filet and bake it. Well, it's I mean, you one can, of my favorites. You can totally do that. I could eat a whole fillet like that. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Just, just, just brown sugar. Just throwing brown sugar on top of. Yeah. Light or dark. 
on salmon. Oh, I like going dark. Yeah. I want that molasses with my fish. Yeah, if it's that, the only other thing I'm throwing on there, just salt, pepper, and brown sugar. That makes sense. Serve that over rice. Yep. I mean, and that's not that different from like a teriyaki sauce either, you know, and who doesn't love teriyaki salmon? Yeah. And fan favorite. Usually most, most teriyaki recipes, well, they call for sugar, but it's usually brown sugar really. Now that I think about it, I hadn't really. You need that brown sugar in there. Yeah. It does have to have that. Like it, it's almost got like that umami kick, you know, mm-hmm. which is your fancy food word these days. If you, if you use the word umami, then people think you know what you're talking about. It's true. It, it's umami, that flavor. It's it's the 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 sixth sense of food. The undescribable flavor, that feeling, that overwhelming. Oh, it's there, but I don't have any words to describe it, so I just say umami. <laughs> well, it's actually not umami. Oh no. It's actually <laughs> it's a Japanese word, and it me it the 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 easiest translation is savory is usually what people give. It's that quality that like that charred meat will have, for instance, or mushrooms or soy sauce, that feeling of like mouth coating kind of satisfaction. And they've actually, they've isolated it, of course, to MSG. (laughs) MSG is the basic, like if you just take MSG powder and throw it in a dish, then like you throw salt into a dish and you get saltiness. Then you take sugar into a dish and you get sweetness. Well, if you throw straight MSG into a dish, you get savoriness or umami but i find that brown sugar has a little bit of that quality too you know it's not it's rounder it's a little more mouth satisfying than straight white sugar and the darker you go like with a dark jaggery or a super dark uh uh, pilanchilo or something like that those go great in any savory stews that you can possibly come up with adobo chili chili with a little brown sugar i'll let you in on a secret What's that? I put brown sugar in my spaghetti sauce. That is shocking. I know. And and on that shocking note, we're going to have to say goodbye to you this week. We've come to the end of this hour. I would very much like to thank my guest, Adrian Huff, for coming on to Check the Pantry to talk with me about brown sugar. Oh, no. Thank you, Jeff. It was a blast. I am glad. I had a great time. My name is Jeff Lockwood. This has been Check the Pantry. Stick around. Next week, we'll be talking about apples. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet, Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Eben. The cooking and tasting segments were recorded at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. This is the fourth episode of the first season of Check the Pantry.